would, grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation 3. We will look at the sixth church today. Let's read about it. Revelation chapter 3 and beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The reason I'm excited about this today is we're going to talk about a church that I believe that that we are most similar to. Um, And it's the church in Philadelphia. They are what we've looked at these churches They are what we would consider to be the faithful church. Now, I'm not saying we are perfect. So when we talk about a local church and we use the word faithful, faithful doesn't mean perfect. And you know why it doesn't mean perfect? Look around the room. There are human beings in the room. No human beings are perfect. And so there's no, there's never been, I better not hear a bunch of amens right here. There's never been a perfect sermon. There's never been a perfect group of elders, there's never been a perfect building, there's never been a perfect this. So when we talk about faithfulness, we're not talking about perfection, we're talking about imperfect people who are at times quite broken. But even in their brokenness, they are doing what? They are surrendering their brokenness to the one who can heal and to the one who can sustain and strengthen and give direction. And so there's a submissive heart and an attitude in a life, in families, and particularly as we talk about today, in a local church. So faithfulness is not equal to perfection. Now we desire to walk intimately with God as closely in holiness as we can, but again, there's not a way that everything is going to always be perfect. So there are two of the seven churches that Jesus had nothing negative to say about them. The other one that we saw in week two was the church in Smyrna. They were the persecuted church. They also were dealing with the synagogue of Satan, just like Philadelphia is. So there were a group of Jews in both of these cities in Asia Minor. They were giving quite a bit of trouble uh, to the believers in the city. And so Smyrna is experiencing this. Philadelphia is as well. But Philadelphia is seen and portrays for us what faithfulness to Christ and Scripture looks like. 
Now, in today's day and time, you know this because you've been in and around church for a while. We basically, in the modern church era, we, era, not error, but era, sometimes there's error in the church, but era, we have measured success in a church only by one way. And that's if you've outgrown your building and you've got to build more buildings and your numbers are going up and up and up and up and up. And that's the only way that a lot of people really measure biblically if God is at work and God is alive in a church. Well, biblically, we will see today that that's not how God measures the success of a church. The success of a church is seen in its faithfulness to the glory of Christ and the name of Christ and walking in the truth and teaching the truth of the scripture. There are many churches today in many parts of the world that are small, very small, much smaller than us. And they are living under extreme persecution and yet they are gathering consistently and God is using them to do things. And so it's not size in regard to what matters and we will see that in regard uh, to Philadelphia today. And I believe that faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to the scripture is the true measure of what a local church should be judged by or seen by and understood by. So faithfulness becomes the measure. So look with me in verse 7, and I want to talk first of all this morning about the word and the man of God in the local church. So once again, this is the sixth time that Jesus starts in the same way. Angel means messengers, and so to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write. And I'm just going to stop there. So exact same phrase, exact same way that Jesus is addressing another local church. The local church is to have a man or men of God who understand that Jesus wants him proclaimed and taught on a consistent basis. That this is the driving thing about a local church. So again, Jesus is saying, write the words of me. And earlier he's described himself as the son of God, feet of bronze, eyes of fire, he who has the sword. And so Jesus now begins this and he's reminding them again that the local church is to be about the written text of scripture, that the scripture is to drive the man of God and the men of God leading, the women of God who are leading, The student ministry is to be led by students who have a passion for God and the word. Even children, if you're eight this morning, your life ought to be led by a desire to know the word of God and to know it even at your age and for it to be a a deep part of your life. And so the local church, Jesus, for the sixth time is reminding them is to be about the written text. And so Jesus speaks to John who's writing this down and says to the messenger, the leader of the church in Philadelphia, write these words down for him. So the local church, the ministers, the people are to faithfully welcome and receive the word of God that has come to us. And when we're talking about the ministers... I want to say two things about that. There are two primary things that elders and pastors should know to be true about spiritual leadership in a church. And the first one is this, is that my main job as the pastor of this church is not to be a great administrator. My main job is to know Jesus 
If I don't know Jesus, I cannot have anything effectively to be able to give and be able to say and to minister. And so I must work on my personal faith. I must wake up tomorrow morning and open Daniel 4 with you. I must pour my life into walking by faith in the scriptures. And so the great priority of a minister of the gospel is not administration or to have a good personality, but it is to know God. And the only way to know God is to know his word. And so that's why Jesus says seven times, indicating the priority for the local church to the messenger of the church, you must know me and you must know the written text as it reveals things about me. And so Jesus again reiterates this priority. He does it seven times to each church and to the readers of this book to be reminded of who he is and we are to know him. Secondly with that is not only is the the minister of the gospel to know God, but secondly, they are to know him intimately as they minister in the church. And so they've got to know what does he say about the church? What does he want the church to be about? What does he want the focus of the church to be about? So let me say this, and we'll move on here in a moment. I am to be, our elders are to be, you are to be, fathers in the room, moms in the room, students, single adults, children. We are to be word of God people. Are you with me? We are to be the kind of people that are word of God people. I am to be a word of God man. That as I lead the church to give Jesus the preeminence in every kind of way, he is to get the highest focus. He is the head of the church. Paul spoke about this twice in the book of Ephesians, just affirming this reality that Jesus is the head of the church. So we are to know the mind of he who is the head of the church. And we need to know the way he thinks, the way he operates, and what he has called us to do and instructed us in the scripture And so the word must permeate the leaders of the local church as they seek to know God and as they lead people in ministry. Now, as I've told you, and you know this, that the American church in many ways has gotten gotten off course and there are a lot of things out there. And I want to, and I've been highlighting as we've been walking through this series, some aspects of that. And so Um, We have another video that I want to just kind of show you. This is of a former pastor of a really large church who's left his ministry and listen to what he is saying. He's got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of followers on Facebook or uh, Instagram. So listen to what he has to say. Since I stepped away from being a pastor, I'm often asked, what do I believe now? My convoluted answer might be helpful to some of you. While I still find so much of Christianity beautiful, particularly the life and teachings of Jesus, one great thing about not being a pastor anymore is that I'm not being paid to believe and defend a particular set of doctrines. I'm a free agent. I can believe whatever I want, and I can change my mind as often as I want. It turns out that all of us can do this. I've let go of a need for certainty or even consistency, and I've become much more comfortable with mystery and ambiguity. So while I do still think of myself as a Christian most days, that doesn't really matter. Because if today I don't feel like a Christian, that doesn't have to stop me from deciding that I am a Christian tomorrow, if I want. You're not stuck in any category. Bad doctrines like eternal conscious torment 
scare people and manipulate them into thinking they need a kind of certainty that's not really even possible or helpful. You can continue to evolve and be curious, continue to add the things that make sense and subtract the things that no longer make sense. And I think that's more emotionally healthy and intellectually honest. Since I stepped away from being a pastor, I'm often asked, what do I believe now? My convoluted answer might be helpful to some of you. Well, I still find so much of Christianity beautiful, particularly the life and future. So again, I just wanted to show you this to let you know what is being taught and what is being done out there. Listen, um, we don't get to decide today, I'm going to be a Christian today, and then tomorrow I don't feel like being one, or then, and then Tuesday I can do this. We are to be the kind of people, not of unfaithfulness, but faithfulness. And it must mark every part and every aspect of our lives. So this is a consistency. And so let's learn what the church in Philadelphia was like. And let's desire to be what they're like. We do, by the way, have a set of beliefs that we have to believe in. They define Christianity. If there's not a set of beliefs that define our faith, then what in the world are we doing today? To not having anything to be able to grip and hold on to that is certain and strong. And so as Jesus talks to the faithful church, he talks initially here about his preeminence. And he shares a a number of things in the text here that are important for us to see. So look with me in verse 7. So to the angel, the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write these things. First of all, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So let's talk about these for a moment. These are important. The local church is to be about the exaltation of God by the preaching and proclamation and teaching of the word of God. So the scripture is the revelation of God for us. So the local church is to speak about what does God say about himself. He defines himself. We don't define him. He has done so. And the first thing that Jesus does here is he describes himself as the one who is the Holy One. And the one who is the Holy One has words. These are the words of the Holy One. And so Jesus is to be the leader of and the sustainer of the local church. And as I said a while ago, we must know his mind and walk and embrace the things that are connected to his mind. Our finite minds, though, remind you, cannot grasp the infinite. So we're going to, Jesus is saying something about himself that's not found in Revelation 1. When John turned around and he saw the image, this was not there. These are new things. I love this about Jesus, and I hope you agree with me. We know, I think, just a bit about who he is. We're talking about an infinite God. When you talk about an infinite God, there are no limits. We are finite. There is no way that we will ever know the fullness of who he is here. Now, we are headed gloriously, praise him, to the place where we will stand before him and we will behold him in all the fullness of his glory. And yet, even though we will be in the eternal place with the infinite one, I believe that we will continue to learn glorious, majestic, awesome things about who he is for all of eternity. This is the infinite one. Now, we will live forever. We will be eternal in the sense of living with him in his presence, but we will never be him. 
He is alone, separate from everyone, and he is high and exalted. And so as Jesus shares things about him, he says this, these are these words that I'm saying to you, they come from the Holy One, the preeminent one, and that is me. And I want you to know me. And I want you to seek to grasp all that you can seek to grasp about who I am. And so when we talk about the words of the Holy One, this phrase Holy One in this in verse 7 means without sin, perfect, the one who is separate from sin. And so when he says the words, the words of the Holy One, the, the word is what? Also, what is the word of God? Holy. So as he is holy, as he speaks, because he is infinitely holy, and this is his nature, his words are holy. So do we see his words as holy? Or are we just like, oh, I've gone to church my whole life. Is he going to talk as long? Hey, do you think he's going to talk as long as he usually talks? What if, just what if, we fully got to the place where we recognize that the infinite holy God is a speaking God. He has had words written down for us and that we would sit on the edge of our seat just ready to soak up, not because of the communicator, but because of what's been communicated. That what's been written down is amazing. And so Jesus says here, these are words from the Holy One and of the Holy One. And so therefore they are righteous. There is no flaw or blemish in Jesus. Therefore, when he speaks, there's no flaw or blemish in his word. And we will see in a moment that Jesus sees and he knows that Philadelphia is taking his words serious. So the first thing that Jesus reveals to the church in Philadelphia is simply this, that the, that the words that are being written, the words that are being said, they come from the Holy One, so therefore they are holy. Secondly, that he is sovereign in his perfect nature. So the text says there in verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one. This word in the Greek means that which is genuine, that which is real. Jesus is the genuine one. There is no one like him. There has never been any like him. There will never be anyone like him. He is the Christ. There is no other. And so many people are looking for so many different things to fill their lives and to bring some kind of stability. But only Jesus is real. And only Jesus can bring the kind of healing, strength, and power, and authority in our lives that we need. So again, the strength of the church in Philadelphia is connected to their faithfulness, to the genuineness of the word of God that has come from the God who speaks. And he has nothing negative to say about this church. And again, Philadelphia would not have been perfect. It wouldn't have been, there's not a perfect church. There's never been a perfect church. And so he, he's looking that overall, you look at the people and there's a passionate desire to know God and to walk in the truth of his word. And he sees that this permeates the church. And so he has nothing negative to say that they're faithful to him. We also see that they are persecuted a bit. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But when you are being persecuted, you need the genuine one's presence to be poured out on you and to be connected to him. So Jesus is the true one. No substitute is to ever be our focus. And so they refused every false notion that might have been said in Philadelphia 
of, of who Jesus is. They would have refused every false notion and teaching about the fake gods in the city, and they embraced the trueness of Christ. Philadelphia's faith was solid like Jesus' life because they staked their life on who he is, that he was true, and what was said about him was solid. Hear this life point today. We can count on Christ every moment of our lives to be always true to the truth. And he is never going to ask us to do anything other than that, to be true to the truth. So Jesus describes himself in a preeminent way. He says, these are the words of the Holy One. Secondly, these are the words of the true one. Thirdly, he says, these are the ones who fulfills scripture, who has the key of David. So Jesus speaking here goes back to an Old Testament story. It's found in Isaiah chapter 20. You don't need to turn there, but if you're taking notes, you can write Isaiah 22, verse 20 and following. Hezekiah was a king. He had someone who was called the keeper of the gate, the keeper of the treasure that was connected to the king. This was called the key of David. So there was a storehouse and a treasure house in Jerusalem, and there was someone who was over that. Well, there once was a guy who, who was the keeper of this and rebelled against Hezekiah. And so God says, I'm going to put a new person in place there, And so in Isaiah 22, it says this, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him, this is a prophetic word about the coming Messiah, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and and issue in every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and will be cut down and fall. And the low that was on it will be cut off for the Lord was spoken. And this picture of a nail or a peg in a secure place is a picture of Jesus. And one day he was, if you remember Isaiah chapter 3, that description of him being cut off and and smitten and um, all we like sheep who have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus says this, I'm the one who has the key of David. I open the door to salvation and I close the door. I'm the one who does this. So a key pictures authority and access. And the person who has them lets you in or the person who has it keeps you out. In Revelation 1.18, it says, Jesus, and the living one, he said, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. What kind of keys does Jesus have today? He has the keys to salvation. He's opened the door. You know Christ today? He opened the door. And, and there will be those, his enemies, that he will shut the door and he will keep them out. I quoted this last week, but Matthew 7, not everybody who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there are those who who think that the door's been opened, but it's not been opened. And so the, the call is to ensure that we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. So he holds the keys to salvation. Jesus also 
holds the keys to ministry. And we'll talk in a second about that, about opening door. Here's the fourth thing. I believe it's the fourth thing. Yes, the fifth thing, fourth thing. He is sovereign in his authority who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He is the sole authority in all things and is seen in his authority to open and shut doors as he leads people and as he pleases. When Jesus opens a door, what should we do? We should step in without hesitation and joy that he has opened a door. When he closes the door, we should stay outside of the door in joy that he's closed the door. Since he is all good in every kind of way, when he opens a door, it is good. When he closes a door, it is good as well. We are not to force open the door when he has closed it. So I wanted to share two things because I think probably for a lot of us, we look back on our life and we wonder, why did God close that door? Why didn't he not allow me to, 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 to get this or to get that or to be able to go there? So in 2003, I went to Germany in late August and spoke at a youth camp. After it was over, it was an unbelievable experience. I'm sitting on the plane. Pam didn't go with me. Her father had had a a brain aneurysm and was in a coma all summer, so she had stayed behind and and uh, and he had uh, and actually he had he had died before I went, but there was just still a lot of stuff that was happening and taking place. But on the flight back, as clear as day, not an audible voice, I've never audibly heard the Lord, but in my spirit, I knew this, that the Lord said, y'all are going to be moving to Germany. And so I'm sitting there on the plane thinking, well, how am I going to get off the plane and explain this to my wife? And we have these young children that I really think God is calling us to go to Germany. So through that fall, I tried to figure out how do I get to Germany? Um, how does that work out? And so... Uh, with what we were a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I got connected with the International Mission Board, which is the international missions aspect of that. And so um, I was told, there's no way you're going to be able to get a position. I just said, well, I just know that God has called me. And so in June, in about 10 months, we were in Germany, in the city of Dusseldorf, living there. And I loved it. For four years, I, I loved the reality of of waking up. I love you. I love pastoring. I do. I love being a missionary. When you wake up, Dusseldorf, the city of Dusseldorf was my office. So I'd get on a train and I would go to a new part of the city and I would pray and I would talk to people and I would try to meet people. And so for four years, I did that and I loved it. Um, well, about three years in, it was kind of clear because of some stuff that was going on in the family that God was closing that door. And it became clear with about probably six to seven months out um, in, a, in the middle of our third year that we were not to stay in Germany. And so we had, we'd made a commitment, okay, I think we've got to go back family-wise um, because of some things. And so I resigned my position, and we moved back in June of 2008. Let me tell you what I did for a while before we left Germany and moved back. In my head, I began to say to God, um, God, I, I'm going to figure out how to open this door up because I, stay, I want to stay in Germany. And so in my head, I was trying to figure out, 
God, you know that I, you know that I love what I've been doing. If you've ever been with me on a mission trip, I come alive in foreign places. I love being there. Um, but God was just like sh- shutting the door, and it was clear that we were not going to stay. And so in those moments, we can try to fight God, and we can try to tell God that he's wrong about something. But I, wanna, I just want to remind us when these moments happen, that when God closes a door, he's closed the door out of his infinite goodness. And we may not understand it. And it may be difficult, and we may wrestle with that for a while, but that happens. I had another incident in my life. So I was uh, 29 years old, I think. I was a youth minister in Houston. I worked at a really, really large church in northwest Houston, on Sunday mornings, we had 600 sixth grade through 12th graders in our Sunday school. Gigantic church, gigantic student ministry. When I got there, I was the middle school minister. Well, my head guy left. He took the job at Prestonwood um, and became there. And then another guy left. And so little old me, the middle school minister, was left. And the church interviewed me to take over to become the head youth minister. So I interviewed. We had a great summer, that summer um, uh, where I kind of led things. But then the church just felt like, and I know you're going to be surprised about that, they, they, they didn't want me to be the head youth minister. Y'all are surprised at that, right? I'm just kidding. But they prayed and they prayed and they prayed, and they didn't sense that I was to be the one that was to lead that. And so there were moments of, in that initial moments of those times where I was like, God, this hurts. I, I want to be the head youth minister at the church. I feel like I have the giftings and the leadership ability to do it, but God closed that door. And what happens in moments like that is when you're passed over, you have an opportunity to get bitter and mad about it or you submit to the reality of it. And though I was 29, I think sometimes when I was younger, I was a little, I don't know if I was more dumb or, uh, or maybe I walked with him. I didn't fight it sometimes as much. But I just said, okay, God, if this is the decision, though it was hard, I submitted to it. And they would bring in guys that were interviewing for the job, and I would take them out, and I would take them out to lunch, and I would share with them. And I stayed at the church for about 15 more months after they passed me over. And I learned in that moment and in that time, again, though the whole time was not easy, as we're waiting for the church to bring the person on that they felt God should lead, I knew this, that I needed to accept a door that was closed. And those moments are hard, aren't they? They're hard. We can all relate to those moments. Now, there's a life lesson that now that I'm older, that I've learned that it's, it's God's goodness when he closes doors. It's God's goodness when he opens doors. And so Christ is wanting the church in Philadelphia to know this reality, that I'm sovereign in my knowledge, I'm sovereign in my authority to open doors and to shut doors and to do this. And so let's look at, the, look at verse, verse 8. He says, I know your works, and behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I, I know, Philadelphia, that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I want to talk about the open door of the church for a moment. 
Every church needs this reality to happen. And so when Jesus says this in, in verse 8, when he says, I have set before you, this phrase, set before you, means I have given to you. So I've got the keys to open up a door. I've got the keys to close a door. But he's telling the church in Philadelphia, I have opened a door for you. I've got the authority. I've put the key in. I'm, I've, got, I've got the key of David. And so I'm opening up Philadelphia ministry to you in your city where you're being persecuted to have an effective ministry among these people. And so Jesus says, I'm giving you this and I have given this. So let me tell you some facts about Philadelphia. History tells us, and based on what the text says here, that of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that Philadelphia was most likely the smallest church in regard to attendance. They don't have a lot of resources. Um, They have little power. We'll talk about that in a moment. And yet, the one that didn't have a lot of attenders, didn't have a lot of money in the bank to do ministry, seems to be the one that was the most effective, listen to that, in ministry of the seven churches. And so here's the smallest one in attendance, and yet God opens a door and gives them great power as they trust in his authority to do things. And so as Jesus speaks here, of an open door of ministry, he says this, there are certain type of churches that he opens doors for to do unique ministry. And it's those that are faithful to him. Those that are faithful. A door is opened for Philadelphia to minister where they are. And when God opens it, he says here, Nobody else can come along and say, I'm shutting this. If God opens the door, he has the authority to equip a people to do the great work. Now, look at this room here. Not everybody's here this morning, but it's awesome to see all the new people that have been coming over the last several months in our church, joining with those of us who've been a part of this for a long time. One of the unique things about LifePoint is that God has opened a door for us. And though we are small in number, we have been able to do um, a lot of things in regard to outreach and mission work that a lot of big places have not been able to do. So God opened a door for us, and we've been ministering in Nepal for a number of years now. We have built churches. We have trained pastors. There are two church buildings in the foothills of the Himalayas where for the last 2,000 years there was no Christian witness and there's two church buildings there. Churches are meeting. People are being baptized. This buffalo farm, some of y'all got money. We better get to $3,000. Because if we don't get there, those of you that I know have money, I'm coming towards you. So, So you might as well just give today, okay? So God opens a door for us to do this. And it's been amazing. Those of you have gone or those of you have been here and you've heard the stories, you've seen the pictures. And God is continually opening doors. And God does that with faithfulness. So we, we don't have to be this large church. We have been incredibly effective extending the kingdom worldwide 
with the little resources that we have. Now, we're a different mindset kind of church. We're not a program-driven church. We're asking you to come back to the building every day of the week to do things. Our idea is, and this was the idea and the vision in the very beginning, is that I wanted to pastor a church, to be, I wanted to be faithful for years, that eventually the church would get to a place that they knew how to feed themselves and weren't relying on me, but you could feed yourself. And when we get to that place of maturity where, yes, we want preaching and proclamation and gathering and worship and all those things, but when you feed yourself and you're growing on your own and not having to rely on the church to do everything for you, then you have a stable, mature church. And God has brought that about. We've been, this, this uh, fall will be 15 years that we've been faithfully doing this. And there's a depth to our body. I think those of you who have been here for a while, there's a depth to our body now that wasn't there seven years ago. And all of this comes by faithfulness and faithfulness and faithfulness and God bringing faithful people who love the glory of God and love the word of God and want to walk and, and have a church to be like that. So it's not about, it's not about do, we, do we have the best children's ministry facilities Do we have the best screen? Do we have the best this and that? It has nothing to do about that. It has to do with whether or not you and I are deciding, do we want to be faithful followers of Jesus? Because that's what God blesses. And so Philadelphia had an open door. We have had an open door. And we need to walk through it. This year alone, in 2023, Mark, it's 85, right? 85 individual members of this church went on a mission trip in 2023, 85. That's probably half of what's in this room this morning or close to half that's in this room this morning. We have continued to see God open up these doors and and, and I say all this to, to encourage us is that God opens doors and he asks his people to be faithful to step in there And when God closes doors, then we praise him as well. Regardless of what he does, we praise him. And look at the next part of verse 8. I read it a while ago. He says, listen, I know that you have but little power. You don't have the resources. Maybe the church was tired. I don't know what it was like. They they were dealing with the synagogue of Satan. But Jesus says at the end of verse 8, I know that you have but little power. And yet there are two things that dominated the church of Philadelphia. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. You see, a local church is to be measured by that. Do we love his word? Do we keep his word? Though the culture says contrary things to his word, does the local church keep the word of God? And do they love his name or do they deny his name? And so here the church has suffered mightily. They are weak. They have little resources. They have little power. But Jesus would prevail upon Philadelphia. He would open the door and he would be her anchor and strength in the midst of that. And so standing strong sometimes may mean persecution. But it also means this, that in the real spiritual battle, God is present with his people. And though Philadelphia had little power, the power of Jesus was alive and well in the church. This phrase, little power in the Greek, listen to this. It means this. It comes from two words. 
Micros and dunamis. And it means this. It means small amount of resources and ability. This was not a church that had a bunch of seminary professors in it. This was not a church that had maybe a bunch of educated people. This was a church that just decided in the midst of persecution from a synagogue of Satan, we're going to stay true to the word of God and the glory of his name no matter what. And it dwindled their church probably, refined their church. And the words here mean small amount of resources and ability. And though they have a small amount of resources and ability, Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. Because it's not about, are you small? Do you not have a great budget, big budget? It has nothing to do with that. Here's why. Listen, church, listen. Y'all listening? Philadelphia had tapped into the riches of heaven, so therefore, what else do you need? They had found a treasure in Jesus and his word and in the glory of his name. And so their strength was maybe not in proportion of the wide open door. Maybe they couldn't do everything, but they were able to have effective ministry where they were. And sometimes what is seen as a weakness in a local church, Jesus saw as a blessing. He didn't go, oh, poor little Philadelphia. Y'all just don't have enough people, don't have enough power, don't have enough money. Jesus doesn't look at Philadelphia that way. He affirms Philadelphia in who they are and their faithfulness to him. And if we are not careful, we can do the very same thing in regard to looking at what we cannot do instead of looking at what God has called us to do. And those are different. There may be things that are like, how, how do we do that? I don't know how we do that. But if God's opened the door, let's step in and let's ask him to provide because he's opened this door. It's not the size that determines the impact and strength of a church. They had kept his word. They had not denied his name. And even though they may have been tired... There's been strong persecution, and they had little resources. They stepped through an open door, and they were effective. I'm reminded of of what Jesus said in Luke 12 when he said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So again, it's not about how glamorous you look or this and that. It is our faithfulness. And you know what God does with faithful believers? He honors that. And what he told Philadelphia was this, and this is the fifth thing, is that God's justice would fall upon those who persecuted his bride. And so in verse 9 it says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The true one, The genuine one is not going to put up with the lie that was being said about Philadelphia. He was going to bring their enemies to bow before them. Now look with me in verse 10. And let's talk about the protection of Jesus for the church. So he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
So this first section there, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, it just means this to endure. Patient endurance means to endure under something that is hard. And the spirit is at work there. Philadelphia believers are trusting in Jesus, walking with him. Jesus was their model about that. Um, I know you know this text, but listen to it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is before us. Well, how did Jesus do that? The writer says this, We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then the writer says, you think on Jesus, you consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that's the first part of verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. And then he says this, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so a question comes is, what does this mean? What does this mean that he's telling Philadelphia that there's a worldwide trouble that's going to come on the whole world? It's going to be a deep season of testing upon them, upon believers. What does this mean? Well, you got to always just look at what the text says. Now, throughout the church's history, there have been ebbs and flows of um, periods of time where people believe this but you can like a period of time where they really believe this and it kind of awakened the church and the church rallied around this. But you can look back during those moments of history where it wasn't believed as much, but you can find traces of that belief, like the reformers. So the reformers in the great reformation, um, some some people would say, well, the church really didn't believe a lot of the stuff that the reformers taught and got reestablished again in the church um, as they reacted against what the Catholic church was teaching, but you can look back through history and the things that the reformers were teaching, you can see those all the way back in the beginning. You can see those things that are connected to Scripture. So there are some other things like that as well that people, some people may say, well, that's not really there and the church hasn't really taught that. It's been a more modern thing or it's been this period of time, but you can kind of look back and you can see those things. And so I wanted to kind of deal with one of those for a moment here. And this is where there may be a little bit of disagreement or different perspective about things. But we've got to look and see what the text says. And I don't want to ignore this that's there. Are you intrigued yet? Okay, all right, here we go. All right. So the question is, I will keep you from the hour of trial that he says there that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the Greek word here for keep you, um, I will keep you from the hour, is a, is a Greek word that means not in something, keep you from being in something, or keep you from being going through something. It literally means this in the Greek. It means I will keep you out of something. It's a phrase that means out of. It's ek, means out of or away from. And so the question comes, What is he going to keep them out of or away from? And so to answer that again, we have to go back to verse 10 and see what verse 10 and consider things 
as they are, not what we want them to be, but what does the text say? So three things that are said there. There's a trial, the specific trial that's coming at a specific time. It's going to be characterized by coming upon the whole world, not just a region. It's going to come upon the whole world, and it's going to try everybody who's living on the world on the earth. So I believe that this is a reference to what we would know, Revelation 6 through 19, what we would call the great tribulation that's coming. And so Jesus uses the words here, that is coming upon the whole world. Now, when these things were spoken, they all, Old Testament, New Testament, they always had present-day application to those people that they were written to, but it also had future implication as well to the church in some instances here. So again, I believe this is a reference to the Great Tribulation. And it seems that what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia is that he is going to save her out of a great hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world. And the indication here, it does not say that they will be saved in the trial that's coming on the whole world or through the trial. The Greek says, I'm going to guard you from the trial. I'm going to, I'm going to keep you from it. I'm going to keep you away from that. It's not a guarding in it, and it's not a guarding through, according to verse 10 here. So this is where those who lean this direction would say, This is an indication of what's called the rapture, that God is going to take God's people before this comes, that he's going to keep them out of that, Um, not in it or through it, but he's going to take them out of that that's coming. And so, um, again, that's, that's, uh, that's what 10 says. It's going to be out of, not in, not through, and it's, and, it's, and it's connected with those who are going to be tried, who are living on the earth, and the whole world will go through, um, through that. And so the idea and the looking of that is that many believe that that is an affirmation of what is taught in, by some in regard to the rapture. Now, the second coming of Jesus is seen as God's people as a victory, right? It's a victory. So this is not, this can't refer to a trial that's coming on the whole earth to try them because the second coming of Jesus will be seen as glorious by his people. And so this is an idea of a tribulation, a testing that will test people in many ways. But Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to protect you out of that. Now, many people believe that the seven churches represent the historic history of the church leading up to the last days. So next week, we're going to look at a church called Laodicea. And if you remember anything about Laodicea, Laodicea is the lukewarm church. And we know from some of Paul's writings that in the end, there's going to be a great falling away from the church where people aren't going to have their heart, um, their heart's not going to be in it. They're going to gather teachers that will tickle their ears and people will get people that will just tell them what they want to hear. And so we'll look at that next week. And so some, some believe that, that Philadelphia is a picture of this refined church, remnant church in a period of great difficulty and tribulation that is going to come upon the whole world is that the church will remain faithful until that day. So now look at verse 11. We're about done. I am coming soon, Jesus says. 
Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The faithful church, guess what? They're faithful to the end. They're faithful to the end. This word soon here doesn't mean uh, two o'clock this afternoon. It means swift. That when, he, when Jesus comes, it will be swift. It will be speedy. It will be fast. And so he tells them, until that comes, you remain faithful. You hold fast. You hold fast to that. Lastly, verse 12. So the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So I want to talk as we finish about the transformation that is ours. Okay, everybody sit up in your seat. Y'all ready? I'm going to be a teacher. Sit up in your seat. Okay. All right. This ought to move you. If what I'm about to say right now doesn't move your temperature where you sit, you need to go home and get in the closet and, and, and ask God for help. This ought to move you if you're a follower of Jesus. So Jesus has been telling all the churches that if you will hold on to me and you will walk with me, you will be a conqueror. He said it to every church. So here's the sixth time. To the faithful church, Philadelphia, you are going to be conquerors, but there's going to be a unique thing that I want you to know about what's coming for you. There's going to be a transformation in your life that's going to be yours when you are in the presence of God. So let's read it again. 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. That's a lot of writing. Those of you who hate tattoos, Jesus is going to tattoo you one day. He's going to write on you. Mark you and say, you're mine. So I want to talk about the permanence of our security connected to the faithful church. So he uses this phrase, I will make him a pillar, a pillar. We have some pillars right here. They're painted black and one's encased in there. Pillars hold up, right? So if you go to Europe and you see these big ancient buildings, they're pillars that are there. They hold up things. And so Jesus speaking here says, I'm going to make my people a pillar in the temple of my God and never shall he go out of it. Now, in heaven, there's going to be this temple. Here's there's the picture. Jesus speaking here. There's going to be this eternal temple. Now, we don't have any idea about it, but it's got pillars. And the indication here is the pillars in heaven are the redeemed people of God. He says, I'm making my people pillars in the temple of my God, and never shall he go out of it. These are, because it's heaven, this building one day will not last. In heaven, the temple will last. The temple in Jerusalem didn't last a couple times. There's not one there now. But in heaven, the temple is going to last, and inside the temple will be pillars, and the pillars are the people of God, the redeemed people of God. 
That means this, that temple will not fall as it is comprised of Jesus, maker, and his people who have been redeemed by the blood, the redeemed people of God. So in other words, it means this, we are permanently fixed to the city of God in heaven, to the temple. That's where we are positionally. That is our hope. That is our future. And then he says this, not only that, Philadelphia was one of the cities in Asia Minor that throughout its history had multiple earthquakes. And the city was just crumbled multiple times and they had to rebuild it. One time it had crumbled so much they couldn't rebuild it until 19 B.C. And uh, the only way they were able to rebuild Philadelphia at that particular point in time was is that they had to plead with Rome like, we don't have the money to rebuild the city. So Rome said, okay, for a period of time, we won't levy any taxes on you and you use all the money in the city to rebuild it. Um, and so that's what they did. So Rome didn't, didn't tax them, and they were able to rebuild Philadelphia. Now listen to what this says. What would happen was these earthquakes would happen in Philadelphia. Um, there was a volcano that was there. And when it would begin to rumble and erupt, the people inside of Philadelphia, they would immediately leave, and they would get away from the city, and they would live in tents. This was a consistent practice of the inhabitants in the history of Philadelphia. They could never permanently live inside the city because it crumbled all the time. Now, I want you to hear this. Jesus himself speaking here about believers. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God in heaven, my God, the heavenly Father. And you're never going to have to leave it. You're never going to have to flee. There will be nothing that will destroy it because when I open something, I open it. When I close something, I close it. And I'm not closing that. It is open and you're going to be a part of it. And so the permanence of our security is tied to the reality that we are made a pillar in the temple of God in heaven. Secondly, never are we going to have to be forced to leave and flee because when we get to heaven, it is purity and purity and purity and purity and holiness and goodness and God and Christ and the Spirit and the Father and all of these incredible things. We will never get out of God's plan of salvation and the security of it. Never shall he go out of it, Jesus said. Here's the third thing. And then he will give a personal signature upon our lives. He's going to write on that pillar. He's going to write the name of the Father on that pillar. He's going to write the name of the city of God on that pillar, the new Jerusalem, our new home. Thirdly, Jesus says, I'm going to get a new name, which a little weirds out my brain a little bit because Philippians 2 tells us that he's got the name above all names. So does he need a new name? Well, Jesus says he's going to have a new name and he's going to write that on us as well. Listen to the security of our lives. We will be in the temple of the heavenly father in heaven. We will be a pillar there. We will never have to be forced to flee. Never there will be anything. No crying, no pain, no death, no sickness, no heartache, none of that. We're a pillar. He writes the name of the father on us. The city of the God of the new Jerusalem will be written on us. And the new name of Jesus will be written on us. Listen to Revelation 19, 11. John says, And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And so before Jesus came the first time, the angel Gabriel said to Joseph that Mary would bear a son and they were to give him the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sin. Jesus' name means Jehovah saves And now that Jesus has finished the work and we will be there with him permanently in heaven, there's a new name and we will be marked by it. Is that not amazing? We've all liked, I'm not praising Disney. But there's a unique moment in Toy Story where Andy wrote his name on the bottom of Woody where he was marked and it identified him. And I want you to know, church, today that the eternal Son of God who is holy and perfect has redeemed sinners like you and I and he has marked us with his name. We belong to him. And so, as this closes, Jesus once again says, church, listen to what the Spirit is saying. And what's the Spirit saying about Philadelphia? Is that God honors the faithful church, that when God opens the door, they step through, and that God will be faithful to the faithful, and he will mark them as his. That's amazing today. What security is ours? Because we have been marked, and we have this promise of what he's going to do in the future. And I tell you, the world needs more churches like Philadelphia. Amen? We need faithful, faithful places who are willing to withstand the pressure and to be faithful to him. Let's pray.